I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. The Long Tunnel of Wanting You by my guest today on the program, Vanessa Dow. Let me tell you a little bit about Vanessa Dow. Dancing, the poet John Dryden once wrote, is the poetry of the foot. Throw music in the mix and you'll have an understanding of the brilliant and wondrous career of Vanessa Dow. A dancer, a poet, and a musician, Dow's oeuvre is a seamless confluence of those three creative disciplines. Think of her as like an artistic triathlete whose body of work evinces her knack of combining those three mediums with skillful and stirring alacrity. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Our story actually begins in St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands. That's where Dow was born in the late 60s. Here's a fun fact about St. Thomas. It was purchased by the U.S. from the Danish in 1917 for roughly $25 million in gold. Not a bad deal. That is, if you had $25 million in gold. If you didn't, very bad deal. Now, you're probably wondering, what is St. Thomas like? Well, picturesque and lovely, St. Thomas is the home of the Coral World Ocean Park, Blackbeard's Castle, and the Buck Island National Wildlife Refuge. Go there. It is gorgeous. I'm telling you to go to St. Thomas, but Dow left. She left at age 16 when she was sent to boarding school in Massachusetts. She did two years at Vassar in Poughkeepsie, and she later landed a dance scholarship at Columbia. While at Columbia, she trained with the legendary National Medal of Arts winning choreographer Eric Hawkins, the renowned visual artist Barry Mosier, and the inimitable poet Kenneth Koch. Now, you may not be familiar with those three names, and that's okay, but trust me when I tell you this. That's a bona fide power trio of sheer artistry. So, Dow was dancing, she was writing poetry, and she was making music. A few demos she cut found their way to New Groove Records, which was a respected New York underground electronica label. Now, the New Groove Association was a pivotal one. Dow lent her vocals to a new track called It Could Not Happen. And, well, it happened. It was the label's biggest selling single, and it was picked up by the Birmingham label Network Records in the UK. This was a huge pickup. 
Network was one of the most instrumental labels for bringing Detroit techno and Chicago house music to British audiences. What did this mean? Well, it meant that the UK now knew very well who Dow was. It also meant that US labels knew that the UK now knew very well who Dow was. All that underground attention put her on Columbia Records' radar, and Dow signed a seven-record deal with the label. Vanessa Dow's major label debut came under the name of a dance quintet called The Dow. Members of that quintet also included Dow's husband Peter, as well as former 24-7 Spies drummer Anthony Johnson. The Dow's 1992 record head music yielded the number one single, Surrender Yourself. Infectious, hypnotic, and utterly catchy, the song stayed atop the charts for 11 weeks. And it sounded like this. So, the Dow's debut single hit number one. Not bad, right? Not at all. But what was bad, however, was the creative differences the Dow had with Columbia. Let's just say this. Their visions weren't aligned. Which is code for, we need to see other people. Or, to put it in music business terms, we need to get off this label, man. And that's exactly what they did. Shedding the band name, Vanessa Dow reemerged two years later as a solo artist. Her 1994 effort, Zipless, was a groundbreaking confluence of synthesized beats and lush electronica, all set to the poetry of best-selling author Erica Jong. Dow's spoken word delivery, combined with mesmerizing vocal and sonic textures, made the album come across as a heavenly blend of Leonard Cohen's I'm Your Man and the Cocteau Twins' Heaven or Las Vegas. It was profound, powerful, and important work. Zipless came out independently on Dow's own Lotus label, but it was picked up by an MCA subsidiary and re-released a year later in 1995. How did Zipless do? Well, it pretty much crushed it, and it was a critical darling. The album's first single, Near the Black Forest, was all over VH1. Zipless was hailed everywhere from Time to Billboard and... Dow found herself touring with Guru and Jazzmatazz and making new fans wherever she went. In other words, the word was out. Dow was now. And there was no slowing down. 1995's Slow to Burn was an equally ambitious project, with each track taking its cue from the biographies of women like Gertrude Stein, Billie Holiday, and Frida Kahlo. Its first single, Two to Tango, stayed at number one on the Billboard dance charts for three weeks. And the album's electro-jazz grooves sent it straight to the top of several critics' year-end best-of lists. Over the course of the next 20 years, Dow continued to put out genre-defying, utterly spellbinding, and musically adventurous records. Let me run through a list for you. There's 1997's Plutonium Glow, 1999's Dear John Coltrane, 2000's Make You Love Me, 2008's Joe Sent Me, Sweet Light Crude, Act 1, Hybrid, came out in 2013, and 2017 saw the release of the career-spanning anthology, Welcome to My Blues. To commemorate the 25th anniversary of the release of Zipless, the album will be making its vinyl debut on December 7th. And, trust me, 
it was worth the wait. Beautifully packaged, pressed on 180-gram vinyl, and totally remastered, the album is being released by Dow's own label, DRKR Records. And I'll tell you how to order it at the other side of the interview. But before we get there, let me say this. Vanessa Dow's music is an achingly perfect blend of trip-hop, acid jazz, techno, electronica, and soul. She's inventive, she's unique, and she's unreasonably brilliant. She's as smooth as Sade, as idiosyncratic as Stereolab, and as timeless as Sarah Vaughn. And I love talking to her. All right, I'm glad you're going to hear this one. This is a great chat. Me and Vanessa Dow. Enjoy it right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Uh, no, I'm actually going to be going to uh, going to somebody else's house. So, you know, I'll, I'll figure out the pots and the pans. That, that's basically the, the only thing that's that I'll miss is my own, you know, my own kitchen stuff. Well, I guess life is all about figuring out the pots and the pans, right? That's a good metaphor. Hmm. Huh. I like that. <laughs> I like that even, even when they're aluminum, That's which right. I don't understand, but, you know, okay. <laughs> um, I'm excited about the this issue of uh, this reissue, really, of, of Zipless. Um, I was on board. Great. You and I, you and I are around the same age, and I... I was on board when it came out and it was such a special and, and um, really innovative project. And it, it struck me immediately, mm. you know, I'm a poet and, um, and it really resonated w- with me a great deal. I want to talk to you about that, mm. but I wanted sure. to start by, by sort of saying that when, you know, artistically, it's the kind of record you would make, you know, 15 years into a career and you, and you would really just start mm. it. So I, I'm curious <laughs> yeah. to know, how you arrived at your initial artistic vision. I thought I'd start with a light mm. question, Vanessa. <laughs> yes, geez, thanks so much. Let me have that second cup of coffee. <laughs> um, wow. Um, I know, I love, I love talented questions. So I will rise to it. Um, so I, I think from early on, I had a sense that I was on my own planet, <laughs> really artistically, yeah. You know, like my own, I was always doing my own thing that other people would, like, you know, I would, to me, they were perfectly, they seemed perfectly, you know, reasonable. But I, I'm used to the very quizzical looks people give me about what it is that I'm doing and my vision. And so, you know, um, basically, from from the early days when I started at New Groove, I was really I really latched onto this poetry meets song um, overlap. You know the the intersections where poetry and song can kind of dovetail and do different things to one another. And I really wanted to explore that terrain because I came out of Columbia University having, you know, done a lot of my poetry readings. And there I had the opportunity to work with Erica Jong's material. And um, I, you know, kind of, I grew up, I'm a child of the 70s, and my mother was a writer who had read Fear Flying. and, And so to me it was 
a real labor of love. It was a chance to, in a way, get to learn not only poetry, Erica's poetry, but feminist, a feminist perspective, and also my mother's perspective, and my mom died fairly young. So it was my chance to kind of explore lots of emotional and psychological territory. When you talk about your own planet that you realized you were, you mm-hmm. were on, I think it's a really mm-hmm, important yeah. thing to point out because a lot of our listeners are aspiring artists, musicians, actors, writers. Mm. And I think recognizing that planet and exploring that planet mm. is so important. Can you talk about mm-hmm. how you have the confidence to do that? Sure. Um, uh, I guess early on, you know, some of my earliest inspirations are children's books. Number one being The Little Prince. Um, So that metaphor is actually, you know, about being on your own planet is a very visceral, a visual and visceral one to me. Like it's very real. Um, And I think that's why that book resonates with so many people. Um, And, you know, um, um, Harold and the Purple Crayon is another one of the books where the little, you know, infant takes his purple crayon and draws on walls and creates his own world. So that was all, that was always me because I had a very difficult youth and art was my escape. Art was my refuge and art was the boat that I drew on the wall and sailed out, you know, into my own you know, to my own imagination. So that's always where I wanted to be. And the artists that I admire were always really out there. You know, Paul Clay, Kandinsky, Picasso, um, artists who make you go, what? Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, artists who are brave. Like I never wanted to be an art. Like to me, the only, the only reason to be an artist is if you have something to say that, you're almost, you know, you're daring yourself. If you're constantly daring, I'm constantly daring myself in, in a way because I like, like I said, I like challenges. So I'm a very curious person and my ideas that I'm interested in are very oblique. So, but I like taking oblique ideas and making them understandable and, 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 and giving them language that seems perfectly, um, you know, natural, but yet the, the, um, discourse behind it is really complex. So that's where the friction comes. Uh, and, you know, poets who give you that language that seems, you know, like Ashbury, the language might like the words are <laughs> seem normal, but what goes on behind it, you know, is there's so much depth to it and that's what trips you up and that's where the mystery and the beauty is. Yeah, because when I was starting to write and I found I found E.E. E. Cummings and I found John Ashbery and I mm-hmm. went, wait, you can mm-hmm. do that with words? Like you can actually right. right? You can actually like take them apart right. and uh, you don't have to adhere to uh, the rules of punctuation and, and sentence mm. structure. And to me, that, yeah. was, that was like as liberating as, as like punk rock. It is. Absolutely. You're right. Liberating. It's funny you said that word liberating because I'm reading these books of the feminist papers and Sisterhood is Powerful, all about the women's liberation movement. And I was talking to a friend how like, the word liberation isn't 
really used anymore. No. Um, you know, liberation. So the that word liberating is, to me, I associate it with liberation, and and we've kind of gotten away from the word liberation to empowerment and power, and words that have more to do with um, almost strengths rather than some kind of like existential um, need, which can't be visualized so much. Yes, you can visualize it with a fist, um, you know, hands raised, but liberation is so internal. And so how do you, how do you, um, how do you, you know, realize that? How do you make that palpable to somebody? And to me, that's what music does more than anything because music combines the poetic with the sonic and also with the added, um, when you have a singer, you've got the addition of the singer's voice, which communicates on so many levels that are not, um, that, you know, that you can't articulate that are so like fundamental and primal. And so the voice to me, just as you were saying, in terms of exploring new territory, the voice is always, I'm always discovering or interested in discovering new timbres and new tones to my voice, which communicate the unspoken. And on the idea of liberation, I would rather be free than powerful. Mm, Exactly. That's, That's a great quote. And to me, I would rather express grace um, than, um, than power. Like to me, grace is a form of power, but a lot of people mistake grace for, um, for like luxury, you know, like, okay, you can afford to do something beautifully because you've got, you know, or, you know, I actually, I think people don't associate, I should say people don't associate grace with power. Um, but if you look at the martial arts, it's all about grace. And to me, it's this is some grace is something that I'm studying and um, working on in terms of the the show that I'm putting putting together because I come from a background in dance. So to me, grace really speaks to the um, a liberated a liberated spirit. When you can be graceful, um, I physically. I believe that represents a sort of freedom inside your your spirit and your soul. Yeah, I agree with that. I was thinking about in martial arts, I was thinking about that elegant transfer of weight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As a way to sort of to visualize, you know, what you're talking about with that, just in terms of like mm. leaning weight in different directions to get different results. Mm. Mm, I love that. Um, I, I think that's probably part of why when I perform, I, I was never able or I'm never able to stand in one place. I have to move. And to me, movement is something I've written about. To move is or to move somebody or to be moved is to go from one place to another. Um, it doesn't have to be physical, but it feels like a shift to feel it is a shift. It's it's a going toward and away from something. So um, movement is something that is, is, it could be so subtle. Um, 
but you feel it, you could feel the most subtle shift in an emotion, for instance. And to me, moving the body physically, when I'm on stage, moving my body physically is part of how I like to express myself when I'm singing. They, they go together to me, moving physically and um, singing are kind of um, intertwined. I'm trying to imagine your record collection as a teenager. I'm I'm thinking Laurie Anderson. I'm thinking <laughs> Nina Simone. I, I don't know who who were your. Oh gosh. <laughs> uh huh. Oh gosh. I okay. Well, because I grew up, I grew up in St. Thomas, so we really, as far as I know, I don't remember a record shop. You know, so I I really just listened to the radio, and I I started collecting records when I was in high school. I went away to high school in Massachusetts and that's when I started. Um, my first two records were Leonard Cohen. Mm. Um, so um, then I started collecting. Oh, actually my first record was I inherited from my dad's collection, which was Billy holiday. Um, and he also Erskine Hawkins. Those were the two. And then the first two I bought were Leonard Cohen because I had a, a friend from Ireland and who introduced me to Leonard Cohen. That's, n- nobody um, my age was really listening to or interested at that time, listen, you know, <laughs> listening to Leonard Cohen. Um, so that's another one of those times when I would get very quizzical looks. Um, Leonard Cohen, you know, it's police, go-go's, B-52s, um, the Ramones, you know, I, I was, I was so, you know, all of this was so new to me because I didn't grow up up in the States. So, like, when I first saw the Ramones, the record, I just liked the record cover, but I I thought the group was called Ramones. <laughs> 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 so I told my roommate, oh, my gosh, this band looks so interesting. <laughs> and I said, Ramones. And she was laughing hysterically. I had no idea why, but of course it was one of my most, yeah, it was a classic Vanessa moment. Um, <laughs> anyway, the, the Ramones, um, let's see who else. I had Bowie. And then I found this dash of records, this, this whole pile of records somebody had thrown out when I was in college. <clears throat> and, that, and there was a lot of jazz in there. And that's when I started listening to Coltrane and and, and uh, Monk and Mingus and Miles and really diving into the jazz, um, that the whole world of jazz, which I, I hadn't been really that exposed to except, you know, Billie Holiday and Erskine Hawkins um, in, a, in, a limited, in, in a limited sense because my dad's collection was not was not great. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Were were you attracted so, to yeah. the like improvisational element of that music? Mm, mm, interesting, very 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 apropos question because I was, and, and in fact, I it was it was in high school that I became very interested in improvisational dance. So to me, it was a very natural thing that I was drawn to musically. Um, you know that sense that you don't know what's going to come next. It's not planned. Um, it's like, you know, the whole stage 
open to you as a dancer without any script whatsoever, without any, you know, roadmap. Um, so to me, I really identified with jazz artists who would just take that leap and just, just go, you know, just go with the feeling because you're rooted in so much foundational um, uh, practice and knowledge. So you can have that freedom again, going back to the word liberation, mm. it's liberating. Yeah. To not, to, to not know where you're going to go, but to know that even if you mess up, you're going to deal with it. You're going to land on your feet. And even if you don't land on your feet, you'll do something um, that will be interesting and maybe funny, but you'll deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Even living our lives is really an yeah. improvisational exercise, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. I love that analogy. Um, it is. And, you know, we always or one always wants to, or most of us anyway, want to know what's coming next, you know? Um, and I, I think that's what a lot of filmmakers and writers address when they write, you know, the fact that we don't know what's coming next. And, um, you know, I, I, it's the um, price of, being a human being you know it's the human condition um so we're either going to be excited by that and or be burdened by it um or both i guess both i guess is totally normal um but improvisation is to me the the art the form of art the form of dance that i'm drawn to the most even watching i love watching dancers improvise in the same way I love listening to um, jazz musicians and watching them imp improvise because you can see that they're on the edge of their own seat. And that's where I want to be always creatively. And you have to really allow yourself to sort of default control to just letting go. <laughs> right. Right. You do. Yes, absolutely. You, you have to, it's sort of a pact you have to make with yourself. Um, you have to, like there are a number of pacts that I make for myself that are really simplistic. Like I'm not, not, not going to be angry if I miss my train. Like, you know, I'm not going to be angry if, um, you know, I was living in LA for a while. I'm back on the East, East coast now, but the, the traffic lights there are really, I mean, you can be on a street corner waiting for 10 minutes sometimes. And, yeah, I'm not even exaggerating um, on some of those street corners. And if you add up the time that you spend every month, it can be like maybe an hour, like standing on a street corner. So the pact I made with myself is, okay, I'm gonna be, not going to be irritated every time I stand on this corner because I was starting to be. And I'm going to use that time to, you know, stretch my, stretch my hamstrings or, you know, make some notes. So that's what I started doing. Um, I started making use of that time or just using it as time to meditate. But like these little paths we make with ourselves are really important because, um, because uh, like you're saying, um, that's the human condition. So we've got to accept 
that we are improvising and that we are making it up as we go along and we're going to get it wrong sometimes. And it's, it's really hard to accept that all the time because it's so easy to beat up on ourselves. Yeah. And I think that the key to artistic evolution is to, to not hurry it and to sort of just let it happen. Because mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. the, you know, I look at people like, like Leonard Cohen, who, or Jeff Buckley, or Amy Winehouse, mm-hmm. I feel like they, mm-hmm. they sort of allowed themselves to go the direction that, that they were naturally supposed to go. And instead of trying to do mm-hmm. something that they weren't, that they weren't, you know, meant mm-hmm. to do. So, Interesting. Um, mm-hmm. you know, cause a lot of times you might see an artist where midway through their career, they will make a total artistic pivot and mm-hmm. it's only because I think they've gotten the the strength to finally let go um, and, mm-hmm. and give that give that a chance. You know, whether it's right. you know, I can't think of examples right now, but um, you know, I was going to say the Ramones, but I don't think that I think they kind of were pretty consistent. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the I mean, the uh, you know, I guess Animal Boy oh is kind God. of a departure. But anyway, yeah. but my my point mm-hmm. is is that you have to allow yourself that freedom and. I think yeah. in order to get that yeah. freedom, you have to mm. be brave enough to attempt the thing that you really want to do in spite of what the mainstream culture is saying you should do. Yeah, so true. It's it's And it's so easy to be locked in your own, you know, the vision or, or the vision that people know you most by and to stick with that and to keep doing, you know, you see artists who stick with the same it's a formula becomes a formula and I think if you know actually a really interesting research report would be studying artists who don't do that Mm. who actually um you know maybe they have certain pockets of their career that are like fallow times but then they'll come out with something with just with just a burst of creativity and I I really think it happens um it doesn't happen a lot in the music business because what happens is labels just drop the artist when they don't come through numerically right (laughs) you know when the numbers don't yeah so the artists get dropped and what happens then is the stigma um of being a dropped artist and few labels will have or you know there aren't so many music and our people around anymore to have that vision to say, no, I, I know there's something else in this artist. There's more in there that they have to say. Um, I don't think that happens a lot. So, so that's why, you know, this whole one hit wonder thing is, happens um, because that's the, that's what happens. And I think probably in the music business more, more than any other, because it's such a like singles driven business. Yeah. And, you know, when you and I were growing up in the 80s, everyone started talking about the Velvet Underground, but no one was talking about mm. them when they were making music in the late 60s. Right. <laughs> you know, so true. Um, yep. So you can mm. say to a band, uh, well, listen, if you stick around for 20 years, people will catch on. Everyone's about 20 years behind. Right. <laughs> but that's, not, yeah. you know, you know, that's actually a perfect example of the Velvet Underground. Um, and I guess they got to where they were because they were kind of left alone doing their own thing, left to their own devices. Um, and people just aren't given that chance anymore. They're not left alone creatively. Um, 
and and A and R people now have their hands in the pot, in the creative pot, and which is why I, you know, fought for creative control on on both of my contracts, which I got. Um, and even then, you still had a lot of creative interference. But to me, it defies the whole purpose of being an artist if I'm going to have somebody else telling me what to do creatively. It's just like, what's the point? <laughs> yeah, it cancels it out almost. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. And and uh, yeah, w- what you were just saying about um, you know seeing artists who sometimes um, you know you you see it in a way that also works against the artist where they'll make a creative decision which seems. You know, I, I I don't know if you can understand this, but probably being an artist, you can that that sense that you sense from an artist when something isn't authentically coming from them. Mm, yes. So, you know, like some a musician will put something out that almost seems like a regurgitation of what they've already done. And I, I think a lot of that happens because the A&R people put pressure on them. Well, we just want you to do what you do, you know, just give us a hit. But like, don't. You know, just, just, you know, people expect X, Y, and Z from you. So the artist is, is like a stunted, stunted growth. In the 80s, you would see like, you know, in the end of the 90s, you'd see bands and in interviews years later say things like, well, the company pressured us to do a Cat Stevens cover. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. E- exactly. You know, like um, yeah, I said, I, I left, actually left my first label, Columbia, because they expected something of me, which was not authentic to me creatively. So I'm, I'm an artist who just, it's like, I can't sing a song that I don't feel. I, I can't make music that doesn't move me. And, and to me, it's a, um, it's really a, like, it's frightening to me. The most frightening thing as an artist was always to have to do things or to have to be made to do things creatively that, were not authentic to me because I don't know. I, I found that terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> like really terrifying. And so, you know, I was lucky to have a great lawyer who negotiated certain terms in my deal where I could just wiggle out of them. And that's what I did when I felt creative pressure. Now, there's a really cool thing about, about your story is that, you know, I, I have never been motivated by money and I, I've I've always found that the the art the creation is the most important thing, and you mm-hmm. know to write a great sentence to to do something pow- you know kind of um, mm-hmm. innovative in dance is you feel like the richest person right. in the world. But yet you yeah. found yourself uh, with Columbia with I think you were with MCA too, isn't that right? Mm-hmm. And those mm-hmm. are both yeah. obviously very uh, commercial based businesses or, mm-hmm. or labels, I should say. Right. Um, mm-hmm. how, how did you juxtapose the, you know, being on their roster and being such an individual mm-hmm. artist? Well, in both cases, um, in the first case, I was signed by a man named Dave German, who was the head of the dance department at the time at Columbia. So I was really under his wing. Um, and that's why I signed to Columbia. And of course, because Leonard Cohen was on Columbia, you know, all the history of the label. But I signed because Dave German was a real visionary up there. And again, I was under his wing and I felt, okay, I kind of in the safe, I felt safe. (laughs) Um, And with, with MCA, 
um, and, and, and then there was uh, there became there um, once I had a certain amount of success with my single surrender yourself. What you know, what the other A and R people who started getting involved, you know, wanted what they wanted a whole dance album like Delight. They wanted the whole dance success that I had had with Surrender Yourself with Danny Tanaglia remixing it. It became a really huge hit, and I, you know, my thing was that's a remix. I, my albums are a blend of acoustic and electronic and we do a remix, but in the early nineties, they didn't really understand what a remix meant. So they wanted a whole album of dance music. So I left, so I left, um, Columbia. And then a few years later, I signed to MCA because Bob Krasnow, who had moved from Electra to MCA, started his own label and he had signed, you know, Tina Turner and Bjork and Natalie Merchant, Nita Baker, Metallica. I mean, you name it. He was a real music guy. So he, I moved, I, I signed to Columbia because I was again under the wing of Bob Krasnow, um, who was my A&R guy. And I left at MCA because then there was a merger with Seagram's and at Bronfman, the, the, you know, there was a whole takeover and um, Bob retired and I left. Um, I left. So I, I, I wouldn't have signed with either label without the two of their involvements. Definitely. <laughs> Makes sense. Were, were yeah. there moments where you, after you left the second time, the second label, were you nervous about what was going to come next? Mm -hmm. Or did you, or did you sort of have faith that it would just figure itself out? Um, well, at the time I was, I was actually being managed by um, Benny Medina and the internet was just coming up and I could see how the internet was going to be a provide a real opportunity for me. So I started my own online record label, which is when I made plutonium glow, which was actually to go back to our, to being, you know, to the first part of our conversation was partially inspired by, by the little prince. So plutonium glow was really an ex, uh, an album that explores cyberspace and kind of in a parallel way um, I was exploring outer space. So I was making this inner space and outer space kind of um, I was exploring the parallels of, of inner space and outer space in my album Plutonium Glow. And it's like a lot of it was very futuristic in terms of the electronic elements. And so I released Plutonium Glow um, it, uh, in in sort of in um, conjunction with Benny Medina. So I started my own online record label. I only sold, I sold that only online. It was one of the first albums to be sold online. And, um, and it did, yeah, I did really well with it. Just, just selling it online. So, and since then I've been independent. That's right. And, so you, you've and it, been able yeah. to sort of call, you know, in terms of, you know, putting out the music you want to put out artistically, you're the person you're answering to. Exactly. And, and, you know, it's not about control. It's about, or it's not about power, as we were talking about power, right? It's about empowerment. You know, it's about empowerment. It's about self empowerment. And it's about taking, um, it's about creative control, which is a whole different kind of control. Yeah. And to me, yeah, just what you were saying about, um, 
never being driven by money, which is something I've never been driven by. Um, I've always, again, made that pact with myself that this is what I do is about my art because that's all that's last. That's what is last. And that's, you know, when you put that record into the world, out into the world, you can't then retrieve it. I mean, retract it. Oh, I didn't actually mean to say that. I didn't actually mean to make that music. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like you put that out. It's out there. It's not. You have no control over that. What people think about it, how people respond, whether they like it, if you move people like. So to me, all that has mattered to me as an artist is what I leave, my legacy, um, because that's the pact I made with myself. I'm an artist and either I'm doing this out of the love of the art or I'll do something else. There's, there's no in between um, for me. It's funny because you, you're talking about artists who you, know, you put the work out there and it's out there. The only art form where I've seen, I've seen artists try to revise their work is like, you know, yeah. it's the 50th anniversary of this novel. And then the, the author includes the lost chapter. And I'm like, oh, right. <laughs> I know what that Interesting. is. <laughs> right. That's like, oh, damn. <laughs> Missed that boat. But <laughs> that's actually, that's, that's true. That is the one place where you could actually completely, you know, change something without. Yeah, because, you know, the words are on that page um, by themselves. And you can reshuffle them. You can do anything you want with those words. So it's a lot easier. But you, you can't do that, you know, really as a singer no. or an actor even, you know, or a dancer for that matter. I mean, maybe as a filmmaker, you could say, here's the alternate ending that we didn't do because the studio got nervous. I guess there's right. that too. Um, did you in your True. life, did you ever doubt your decisions did you ever think oh i should have been a psychologist or or did you always mm. steadfastly <laughs> believe believe in your in your your career trajectory you chose for yourself you know it really wasn't until after 9-11 when i made joe sent me because i had been doing other things that were research related i i've also been involved with a number of research projects in my life because I've always been a researcher and I, I look at my albums, in fact, as, as like opportunities to, to research ideas that fascinate me. So, so to me, um, I've always been a little bit, I'm not going to say right, left brain, cause I don't really subscribe to that, but a little like divided in the sense that, um, I, I, I really like intellectual challenges and, um, that don't have to do with making music. So that's why I've always kept my, kept my research, um, you know, kept being, kept being involved with various research projects that are really interesting to me. Cause I, I'm very, that's the way my brain works. I really like to discover things and, um, and I've been involved with a number of really, really, really interesting projects where I've made a difference in, in lots of ways. So to me, it's hard to answer that question. Oh, so after 9-11, when I made Joe Sent Me, I had to make that album. Um, I started writing again, and I, I realized I can't choose to be an artist. I, I am an artist. 
and and in everything that I do, I have a certain approach, which is driven by my practice, which is um, kind of creatively driven. I'm, I'm, I think creatively, I um, I respond to things in very fluid ways. So, yes, sometimes, you know, I'll think, gosh, I, I if I were to do this or that again, I probably would would have been a veterinarian or a marine biologist or a, you know, any number of sort of, you know, any number of things that um, probably would have been science oriented. But I realized that I was meant to be an artist and it's not even a choice. (laughs) It's It's who I am, you know, it's who I am. Yeah.
your mother's death, did you sort of pour through her books as a, a way mm. to sort of try to understand who she was? Mm. Well, as I said, I had a really difficult youth, um, let's just say. So I had nothing of my mother's, of, of any, I had nothing of hers um, because of circumstances of my life and hers. The only thing I had were photographs. Um, so, and the only thing I had was my memory of her, really. And so, in fact, my first album, Head Music, on Columbia, was in large part a investigation of her story. Um, she was a child of the 70s. She was um, a hippie chick. She was a writer. She she had the intelligence. She was one of those you know g- gifted children, always in gifted classes, but she had no discipline. So um, she was you know part of the beatnik culture. My, in fact, my uncle, her brother, was a very prominent photographer in the 70s, who who actually took the photograph that that became the cover of the Evergreen Review Reader. Oh. The, yeah, the woman, the, the face, the portrait of the woman with the butterfly in yeah. her, on her forehead. Wow. Yeah, that was my that was my uncle. Yeah, that's cool. Uh-huh. Yeah, so if so I grew up in this, um, you know, they took they, they, you know, they went to Woodstock. Um, my mom was really ahead of her time. She she would she used to make collages. Oh, I do have one of her collages actually. It's the only thing that I have of hers, but I didn't get that till way later. Um. So, so when she died, um, a, a lot, a lot of my um, music making was kind of my trying to redress her lack of discipline because I'm a very disciplined person as an artist. So, a lot of my um, practice has been to has been kind of motivated by not doing, not making the mistakes that she made, which I felt became her undoing. And a lot of it had to do with discipline and a lot of it had to do with, um, with just, um, letting forces that weren't, weren't in her control run her life, mostly having to do with men. (laughs) Mm. So, which was, yeah, probably part in part why I was really drawn to working with Erica John's material because of the strong feminist statement and, um, really wanting to not make the same mistakes that my that my mom had made you know, creatively and personally yeah right yeah i was going to say creative creatively as well as personally mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and erica's book i i read i remember when i was a kid i read my sister's judy bloom books and that felt scandalous mm-hmm. to me and then right. I, I read um right. you know and that was a good that was a good gateway to erica john i read i read fear of flying i think when i was about 15 um yeah and uh-huh. when did you first uh come into contact with the book <laughs> well i actually came into contact pretty early on which was when my mom was reading it um she was also reading books like Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which I actually read that whole book, which was not a book, you know, that should have been read by, no. by, <laughs> no, I, I, I was very traumatized by that. I did not, I was not able to read all of Fear Flying, but I used to 
just try to like, um, you know, grab because she had this bookshelf and I, and I, so I was always, and she would sometimes leave her books around. So I would grab and read pieces of things. Now I'm not sure how I was able to read all of looking for Mr. Goodbar. I think there was a period of time when I was sick home from school and my mom, like I said, was not a very responsible mother. So, or, you know, she's, you know, she did her thing and she left me home alone for, it was a number of days. And, um, and I, somehow I managed to read that book, but that was the only one I read the you know the whole book of. Otherwise, I would read pieces of things. So I did read a good part of Fear of Flying at a very early age. <laughs> are you how old are you at this yeah. point? Maybe like eleven or twelve? Uh, no, I was younger than that. Wow. Um, yeah, my yeah, I was. Oh gosh, how old was I? Well, you could look at Wikipedia and figure that out. <laughs> 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 I, listen let's just say you were very you were too young to be reading good bar alone in a house <laughs> it was it was horrifying yeah I, I just it was horrifying and i i just i remember i just i was very really rocked by that book and i just kept reading it, it was it was horrible I, and again, I had such a difficult use, so it's like it only made things probably more difficult for me to read <laughs> yeah. a book like that. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so when you decided to do Zipless, uh, which you know is such an incredible um, record, I love it so much, and I and I love mm, that it's you. getting this sort of um, rebirth, which we'll talk about. Um, mm, mm-hmm. What in, in terms of when you re- revisited the the material? How did it present itself to you as an older person of oh, 19 or 20, mm. I guess you were, but or mm-hmm, maybe, mm-hmm. How, did, how did the material present itself to you then? Well, you know, I, at the time I wasn't, um, I, so I had, again, I had um, left Columbia Records, you know, of my own accord. I was doing some interesting things on the New York Underground, um, making experimental music. I wasn't looking for, I wasn't in search of an idea or anything. I was just reading, I was reading a lot of poetry at the time. And I started reading Erica's poetry and I didn't even know. Um, I, I, I kind of knew, I had, like, I had an idea that Erica was a poet, but I didn't know to what extent um, until I um, somehow got a hold of her collection, Becoming Light, which is, you know, a very weighty book yeah. i mean you know i'd seen her slim volumes of poetry but i i didn't realize that it was, you know, it was almost like an anthology so i started reading um reading it and reading you know these poems and i started marking them up the way i do and and somehow it, the, the idea occurred to me wow these these would make great songs and i that's it was it was just like that um and that's when I just started then really going through them, selecting the ones that I felt would make the best would make the best songs. And then we started making music and it just happened that naturally. Um, I was so drawn into her language and her metaphors and her um just her syntax, everything about her, her poetry appealed to me. And I just, I'm, I'm very much like a sponge when I like something, when I love something, I'm like a sponge. I just 
absorb it. And that's what I was doing. Um, and we made that record pretty quickly. I think it took us less than a month. Wow. Yeah. That's really fast. She's she's one of those mm-hmm. writers who, you know, I came to her through Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath, and mm-hmm. then I then I found mm-hmm. uh, Erica's work, which I love, uh, mm-hmm. and still do. Mm-hmm. And she, when I read her, I can always tell it's her. She has. You're mm-hmm. right. There's a cadence mm-hmm. to the way she writes, whereas the same mm-hmm. way, like though very different. If I read a Leonard Cohen poem, I can hear him. Um, mm-hmm. you know, even, even Paul Simon is that way too, where you can just, the phrasing mm-hmm. is, there's a, there's a finesse yeah. to the phrasing. You know, I remember seeing Paul Simon's work in the Norton anthology and going, mm-hmm. oh, right. So there is an intersection between, and I think Jim Carroll, uh, Paul Simon, Leonard Cohen, they were in there. And I remember thinking like, oh, the intersection between like poetry and rock and roll is very much not in my head. Well, actually that goes back to the first, one of my earliest inspirations was, well, my first real inspiration was my ninth grade teacher who played um, Sounds of Silence um, in class and then handed it out and talked about it, Mm. you know, as she was talking about, you know, Wordsworth and, you know, we were, we were learning poetry and she, she approached this song the way she approached all of the poems we were studying, I thought that was, that was fascinating. And uh, in fact, I still have that paper somewhere because um, that was the first time that I really was seeing that possibility of that happening. And then, um, and then uh, it was, I think while I was in college, I read a book. I, I got this used book at a used bookstore called Poetry of Relevance. I believe it was a Canadian, it was published in Canada and it's about, um, it's study, it's kind of a study of songs that, um, somehow had, you know, become part of the, um, part of, part of the culture. And, you know, it, it talked about, let's see, you know, the Beatles and Leonard Cohen and had some Stones songs in there. It had, um, gosh, um, probably Joan Baez and Armor Trading. And, you know, it talked about all of these songs um, in the way that most writers talk about poetry. So anyway, it's called Poetry of Relevance. It's a great book. And, uh, and it talks about how rock and roll um, and poetry how it talks about the intersection that you were just, you were just talking about. Yeah. Because, you know, it's funny when my, when my book came out, my, it, you know, in 2014, my, my first book, book of poems came out and I was doing mm. a reading at UC Berkeley and somebody was asking me, who are your favorite poets? And I think they were expecting me to say, you know, Wordsworth and you know smart the the big respected uh you know Hopkins right. John Donne and instead I said right. Joe Strummer Tom Waits <laughs> that's great <laughs> well kind of disappointed you know yep mm-hmm. <laughs> well uh, you know I I'm pretty sure fast forward to some point in the future um you know there are going to be classes where where these songs are taught and given the sort of reverence that um that poetry is given um because 
these are the this is how poetry is staying alive in fact i think um yes there are amazing poets doing amazing things out there and sexton um and uh, and carson is one of my favorites oh yeah um colin colin kelly is also um who's who i've collaborated with a brilliant poet and so there are so many poets out there doing incredibly uh, moving, relevant, important poetry. But, you know, music is where the poetry is at. Um, I don't care what anybody says. Um, and, and, and in hip hop, um, you know, as well as in rock and roll, there's, uh, there's so much going on that is like really, um, uh, again, really important. And, and where, where this generation is learning about what poetry means, it's, it's in music. Yeah. And, and hip hop seems to be a good, uh, a good kind of link to the younger generation. You know, they look at Kendrick Lamar oh, yeah. and they, they can understand you know, rhyme and meter. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a mm-hmm. good, a good conduit. Um, I, tell me a little bit about your relationship with Erica and are you mm. and, and how her mm-hmm. response was to the album when it first came out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Erica, okay, just to you know, give a little bit of background. So my ex-husband, um, Peter, uh, his Erica is Peter's aunt on his mother's side. Uh, now she went to Barnard which is where I graduated from. And so we had that in common. And when I met Erica, which was when I was still in college, um, we bonded immediately. Uh, aside from her being Peter's aunt, we bonded on a creative level. And, sh- and I told her right away, she, she reminded me a lot of my mother, even her voice. And so I kind of connected with her on that level. And we just, I don't know, from the first moment. Oh, she said she liked my aura. <laughs> uh-huh. And which, yeah, which was really, you know, really meant a lot to me. And she's, she's like a super, she's a very like kind of spiritual person, but incredibly intellectual as well. So it was a really interesting dichotomy in, in her. Cause, um, so, so that was a few years before I actually started reading her poems started making zip lists. And so when I approached her to about, you know, with the idea of making the album, she, she knew I'd come from a background in poetry. I'd studied with Kenneth Koch when I was at Columbia and was, he was one of my mentors and one of my most important mentors. And, um, he, he, he was the one who encouraged my reading, my poetry reading at Postscript up at Columbia. And that's really what got me, kind of like you know gave me the sort of confidence to get out there and start start reading and and so she knew I came from a background in poetry and she knew that I was going to really treat her her poems reverentially which I did and and her one caveat was okay you can make any changes that you want but when you're finished, you're going to have to justify all of the changes to me. <laughs> you're going to have to explain why you made those changes. And I knew I could do it because coming from class with Kenneth Koch, who I must say was one of the most challenging professors I'd ever had, um, 
I, I knew I was going to be okay. Cause I, I knew that any change I made was like, you know, I could back it up. <laughs> and and so, did Erica hold your feet yeah. to the fire on that? Oh yeah. We made a, <laughs> we, yep, we sure did. We made a, you know, meeting a time to meet. She's very, when it comes to her poems and her art and her, you know, she's very matter of fact. Oh yeah. She would never, you know, never um let her her poems are like her children you know she this is this is her her part of her so um sure enough i had to sing her the songs um explain the changes i had them all marked up you know i had all the all the um my changes you know on paper um so if I could explain to her, I shifted this paragraph here. I added this word here. Sunday afternoons was in fact a song that I made. Like I would say, probably of all the songs, that that song was the most radically changed from the original poem. Mm. So um, I had to explain, you know, every single detail of each change, and she she loved it. And in fact, she wrote and spoke. Um, so, you know, the last track on Ziplish, which is Smoke. Right. So she made an appearance, yeah, on the album, which was a huge honor. And, um, oh, and in fact, over the years, we've become great friends. She's still my number one muse and mentor. And her last book, Fear of Dying, which was a huge bestseller, um, she named the main character, Vanessa Wonderman. Oh. So, yeah, she, you know, she gave me a, a little nod in her book, a big nod, because that, to me, when I, you know, she she sent me the book signed, and I had no idea, but when I opened that book, I really, tears come out of my eyes, because what an honor. I mean, what a beautiful, like, full circle to be, for me to be, in a way, inspiring her. Um, it's just one of those things in my life, which has just really moved me, you know, in my core. Yeah. I mean, what a beautiful yeah. and, and personal and artistic symbiosis. Which yeah. Is, you know, it's so mm-hmm. remarkable. And, you know, it's so funny, Vanessa, I was thinking like, you know, if I was on my way to meet Erica Jong in my 20s yeah. to explain to uh-huh. her why I was making changes in her work, I'd be terrified. Yeah. Oh, oh, gosh, the knot in my stomach. Yeah. I'll never forget that. I mean, and she is, like I said, she's like, you know, she's just the ultimate, you know, taskmaster. I mean, she expects you know, just the highest level of, of everything, you know, yeah, when it comes to, yeah, which is great. Um, and again, I had had Kenneth Koch and so uh, for, 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 you know, a year at Columbia and the same thing, like you would go into that class and, um, and, you know, you would have to, in fact, the last paper that we wrote in that class was you had to, um, actually one of the best exercises I've ever had. You had to pick a poet, write a poem in their voice, a whole poem just from scratch, write a poem, and then explain in that paper, defend why you think it was this poem, which was recently unearthed, 
what you had to defend why you think it either was written or wasn't written by that poet. Mm. It's very challenging and funny that you brought up John Donne because my poem, my, my paper was about John Donne. So I wrote a poem in, in his voice and um, proved in my paper why it was, in fact, a new poem just discovered that was, you know, that John Donne had penned. <laughs> and I, yeah. What, what made you choose funny. him? Yeah. Why, why did you choose John Donne? Yeah. <laughs> it <was> like, <laughs> so I, it's, a, it's a really good question because I, you know, I, I really, I think it's because his, uh, I was drawn to his inquiry and love and and also he was like a very he just seemed like a really like he had a very strong voice like you read a John Donne and you know it's John Donne yeah um and so to me he was one of the ultimate like originals he just like I don't know. It's a, and in fact, I remember the name of the paper. I called it "How How It Is Done." <laughs> it's like really ridiculous. How it is done? <laughs> Such a silly. But it it ended up being, you know, it was great. It was really a great exercise, and had my poem had to do with love, of course, as so much of John's done, Don Dunn's material has to do with. I think it probably had to do with that, with the fact that so much of his. Uh, inquiry was about love, and that's really been what my inquiry has always been about. Um, and every album I've made, and just my creative interest is in love and desire and all the permutations of, um, you know, emotions and yeah. I uh, guess I, that's why I chose him. Mm-hmm. I have to know when, in that paper, did you spell done the way you spell his name, or did you spell D O N E? his name i did it yeah it was, i did a play on it and it was a very bold paper and it was you know and i i in fact somebody had once warned me don't take Kenneth coke's class because he never gives a's and um you know i look i loved the class i got an a i i was shamelessly one of his you know, one of his, um, like little disciples, I would sit there and just like really gobble up everything. He, he, again, I'm a sponge. So, so, you know, he would do things in class that would just blow my mind. He would, he would literally pick up the daily news or the New York post and read from it and make it sound like the Bible. I mean, it was a religious experience. So, you know, his whole thing about taking the ordinary, the vernacular, the mundane and elevating it to the level of poetry, that is what I took from him the most. Um, And that is where I've always been drawn to that idea of taking, you know, again, something that might seem ordinary and turning into something really, really extraordinary. Tell me about your inquiry into love. Are you, do you mm. think you're any closer to understanding it? Or is that not the goal? Is that, is that, is that not the purpose of the inquiry? <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, it's a lot like, um, you know, the chicken and the egg. You know, like, it, how did the universe begin? 
I mean, to me, it's as profound a, an inquiry as love. Um, now, am I any closer? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm, you know, but again, taking that leap into the unknown. Do I want to know the answer? Um, you know, maybe I don't. Maybe once you know the answer to something, then you stop asking the question. Right. So, so to me, the 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 search, the inquiry, um, the wonder. Actually, I think it comes down to wonder a lot for me. I I find wonder in, <laughs> in so many things, and I know in a lot of ways, it's it's there's something kind of childish or childlike about it. Um, I was just with friends yesterday and I know they'll be listening and they know who they are. <laughs> and, um, we were going through some things, of some possessions of, um, of some things of, of, of one of their mothers and some of the things that, that she was giving away, um, or they were giving away was her old costume jewelry. And, um, he was like, Oh, look at, you know, look at this, essentially this junk, do you want any of it? I was like, wow, <laughs> costume jewelry. <laughs> and one, one of the guys looks at me like, he's just got this big smile. I'm like, well, like, you know, I loved costume jewelry. And he's like, no, he got such a, like, it was such a childlike response <laughs> to this, essentially this ridiculous, like, you know, really chintzy stuff in this plastic container. But to me, it was like, Ooh, what am I going to find in here? <laughs> now, regardless of whether or not I found anything, which I really didn't, um, it's still the wonder of it, you know, like the that excitement of not knowing. Um, it's it's there's it's joy. It's really so simple, you know. It's 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 simple, but that's what life is about. It's like when the leaves turn, start turning, which they're doing now. Um, in the fall, like I get so much pleasure out of it, um, out of the, the colors and the changes and the, the different hues and like the bursts of red. And I think if you really don't stop and you're not in awe of a tree that just is like almost bursting in flames with these colors, then you're just not experiencing life at a level that's that's really um i i guess primal like at a primal level to appreciate life is really important um everything's so much in our heads so when we can just enjoy something on a on a visceral or primal level i think um we it really it's really important to keep that level of uh, at, like that's not intellectual that's not that doesn't really make sense or you can't really explain it has your inquiry into love how has that changed your relationships to the people around mm. you that are closest to you mm, gosh well it's pushed some away <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it's and it's pulled some closer. So it's interesting because I've always been, you know, again, I'm going to referring to somebody who know who he is. 
Um, he's probably going to be listening, <laughs> but you know, he likes to say that I'm complicated and I like to say that I'm complex and there's a big difference between complicated and complex. Um, and I'd like to remind him that he's complex too. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, it's like, um, I think that most artists are complex thinkers and, um, and in fact, another one of my, um, another person who will be listening, who knows who he is, <laughs> um, um, asked me recently why I think um, artists are are good at um, why why I think artists are artists. <sighs> you know, I get asked a lot. Well. Can you be an artist if you don't do it for a living? It's a, it's a very basic question. So he asked me, um, why do I think artists, why do I think they're different? You know, and I think it has to do with the fact that they're always considering things in ways that other people aren't considering things. Even the word, even the word love, like we're talking about on this level, most People don't go around taking notes and writing haikus and, <laughs> you know, writing haiku and, you know, thinking about how colors convey the sense of emotion. Is th- does this blue convey a more, um, like, a darker sense of longing? Than, like, who thinks like that? <laughs> right. But an artist. Like, it's totally normal for me. So, so the idea of consider the consideration like artists are always considering things that most people aren't. And I think that in fact, one of the things that I'm involved with now, which is really becoming um, like, you know, they talk about a purpose driven life. My, my life is always driven by art, but it's also always been driven by um, art being the thing that has both healed and um, they've both been a refuge and a release for me. So I've been studying a lot. I took a class last year at UCLA um, and it's called social emotional arts. I got my certificate in, in this. And, and so this idea that, um, that art can be used to heal. And so this is really where, where my head's at, where my next project is going. Um, and a lot of that has to do with my, with, again, going back to this idea of love and love being the thing that heals. But I, I believe that art and love have, have a lot in common. So, um, so that's where my head is at now. And, and so when it comes to love, um, I think this idea that um, love is an unanswerable um, thing that you feel, but you can't define. And it's always going to be different because it's like a, it's like chemistry. It's like when two people get together, they're two different chemicals um, and there's always going to be a new way to feel. And that's pretty amazing. 
people in, people around you seem to ask you hard questions. <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, they do. <laughs> I, and and yes, and look, I, I love it because those are the questions I ask myself. Again, you know, um, it's like look the the some of the most complex answers are have to do with the easiest you know, with easy questions. So I love easy questions too, but, um, but I think the thing that interests me the most is in the, in like in the facets, you know, you can think of a diamond as just a diamond, or you can think of it as this faceted thing, which has all these angles. And depending on the angle, it'll like the light will refract in a different way. So, that's just the way I think. Yes, I can think on very basic levels, but, you know, for the most part, I'm really interested in, in complexity. I'm interested in things on a quantum level. And that's where my, where my mind has always gone. And that's really, to get back to our beginning, that's, that's sort of the pots and pans of it all can be found there. Mm, right, yes. Hmm. Absolutely. And, and yeah, I love that going back to, well, it's true. And, you know, again, why I'm so interested in physics and, and um, in phys- the way things behave on a chemical level um, and a quantum or a mechanical level, because, um, you know, the way things move, I'm interested in this idea of degrees of freedom, that things have only certain amounts of freedom in which they can actually um, maneuver. So like with particles, um, so, so when you look at things, when you look at nature, yes, you can just see a tree, but then you can see the veins and the leaves. You can see the rings in the, you know, in, in the tree. You can look at the bark. Like you can get down to its complexity as much as you want or as little as you want. It's really a choice. Um, but the pots and the pans, exactly. The pots and the pans of it. Mm-hmm. The, like you got to start with the basics. And to me, the basics are getting to know the mechanics of your own body when you're an artist get to know the mechanics of your own voice to get to know your limits to understand your limits because if you don't understand your limits um you could first of all damage yourself physically if you're right. a dancer you could damage your vo- vocal cords so you've got to get the, to know the really you've got to start with the basics you've got to start you know learning how to point your toes and learning how to you know like the little to start with the small things and then you can take the the leaps into the dark and know that you're going to land on your feet um, because you've got all of the basics down um, and you never stop learning the basics ever. And the, your, 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 um, your interest in the particles and the, and the physics of the world is almost like a kind of granular understanding of dance Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. Ooh, I love that. Granular understanding. Ooh, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's very, very similar. I, um, I love it. Ooh, yes. Uh-huh. I, um, Fabulous. I have enjoyed talking to you so much. I can't even tell you how grateful yeah. I am that you took I this time. I have too. Oh, thank you for your 
amazing questions and you're absolutely incredible like nuanced like um inc- like inquiry and your direction because I really I really value that ah the pots and pans of life that's the uh that's the stuff we've got to figure out. It was fun to figure it out with Vanessa. Uh, I enjoyed that. If you're trying to figure out where to get your vinyl copy of the reissue of Zipla, stop it. I'll do the math for you. VanessaDow.com will do the trick. Or PledgeMusic.com. Grab a copy of Ziplas, put it on your turntable, and uh, enjoy it. Whether you're having one of those hip dinner parties or you're you know, having one of those soul-searching evenings by yourself, Ziplas will get the job done every single day time. Trust me. And thank you for helping us get the job done every time by supporting our podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, MySpace. If they were still around, I bet they'd do podcasts too. Well, no matter where it is that you get your podcasts, if you wouldn't mind subscribing to ours and giving us a rating and maybe some stars, it would mean the world to us. You can follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor. You can also find me on Instagram, Embers Podcast. And if there's a guest you want me to get, drop me a line, editor at stereoembersmagazine.com, and I will do my best to track them down. Let's close things off with another track from Zipless. This is Near the Black Forest. Enjoy it right here, and I will see you next week on Stereo Embers, the podcast. <laughs>